The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 30. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by my death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents." This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Missy. When a tattoo means life or death, literally. This is an article I I read uh, on NPR News. Listen to this. The man was unconscious and alone when he arrived at University of Miami Hospital last summer. He was 70 years old and gravely ill. Originally, we were told he was intoxicated, remembers Dr. Gregory Holt, an emergency room doctor. But he didn't wake up. He wasn't breathing well. These would all make us start to resuscitate someone in that moment, says Holt. But the tattoo made it complicated. The tattoo stretched across the man's chest, saying, do not resuscitate. His signature was tattooed at the end of it. We were shocked, remembers Holt. We didn't know what to do. The tattoo and the hospital's decision about what it required of them has set off a conversation among doctors and medical ethicists around the country about how to express one's end-of-life wishes effectively and how policymakers can make it easier. In the U.S., the standard way to tell doctors you want to, want, uh, to be allowed to die is to sign an official form saying you don't want to be resuscitated. That means, among other things, you don't want doctors to do CPR, use ventilator to keep you alive, stop breathing. Now, this article, as it even goes on, was to say, what do we do? His signature's there. 
It's stamped across his chest. There's even a picture of it in NPR. It's kind of creepy looking. What, what do you do in that moment? How, how do we make those moment life and death decisions? It's interesting. You read this passage. We've been looking at a letter written by a man named Paul to a church. And he's writing actually from prison. And he gets to a moment, we've been looking at a couple of passages, we've barely started this letter. <clears throat> now we've gotten to a moment where Paul is having a, a, a moment of life or death. He's faced with this. It's kind of an awkward thing to read in a sense. If you read that, you're maybe thinking, it's almost like he's just talking to himself and maybe even talking to the Philippians about, eh, should I stay with you or not? It's, it's kind of a weird thing. But in the midst of this passage is stamped across this letter to live as Christ, to die as gain. What a strange thing. How, how do we make sense of that? If you really think about what's being said here in this letter, it's quite shocking. And it would be if you were the Philippians, because what do you do? This is a guy that you've been giving provisions to, even sent somebody in ministry to care for him in prison. And now he's having this conversation of, I kind of want to go be with Jesus, but I'm going to stay here and labor in ministry with you. And he eventually gets to the point where he says, well, I, I, it's convinced of this, I know I will remain. So, so how do we make sense of this? I think the question that we need to be asking as we look at this is, is this. How can we, if we say we follow Jesus, actually say life is Christ, death is gain? Here's the thing. If life is not Christ, death is not gain. How much do we look at death itself and say, how can I avoid that? And maybe, there, maybe in this room, maybe you find yourself in a place of re religiosity or something and you think death is gain, but is life Christ? Like, does your life explode with that? Or how do you ask the question, life is this? Is it a vacation? Is it the ease you get after receiving a paycheck? What is life for you? Is it, is it meeting that someone? Is it, a, is it a certain place you go to eat and you find that it just sits on you so wonderfully and you say, man, this is living. Where do you say that? You say, it, it, whatever you say, this is living, what do you think of death? Because that's what's stamped here. That's what's tattooed across this letter for the Philippians to say, because Paul isn't with them. And if you notice in this letter, over and over, he actually comes back to this. He says, I'm not with you, but how are you living in this gospel of Jesus Christ? How do you live bearing Life is Christ and death is gain. We're going to look at actually one thing today with one application. One thing. How is living Christ and the application of how do we live as citizens? Living is Christ and living as citizens. You know, it, it, the, the whole passage here talks about living as Christ. And what makes you say that, right? What makes you say living is Christ? Let's do the opposite, reverse. And here's what's interesting. He begins this letter in verse 19, or this passage in the letter. And he says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, it will turn out for my deliverance. 
As it is my eager expectation and hope, I will not at all be ashamed, but with courage. Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or die death. There's a moment where he says that I will not be ashamed. I eagerly expect and hope. And in the Greek version of that, talking about expectation, it's this straining. It's this, 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 um, this looking into. It's almost like a head turning, the description of a head turning so much so that it doesn't want to look away from its object. And I know it sounds kind of goofy sometimes when we say, Greek, the Greek is. I'm not doing that simply so you think I'm smart. I'm saying that often, uh, as much as I'd love for you to think that. I'm actually using that because the language mines out certain things. Imagine that. When you're driving, we have this all the time. When you're driving, you constantly need to have your eyes in the specific place. You know that if you crane your head a certain way, what happens to the steering wheel? It begins to move. It's very simple. Paul's giving the same idea there. It's eager expectation. And that he will not be ashamed And the shame that he's talking about there isn't a shame of like guilt. His shame isn't of, oh man, I did something wrong. It's a very interesting thing. It's a a concentrated shame. It's a shame of being judged in the moment. He is looking down the corridor, being in chains, and knowing that his trial is coming. That the Roman authorities are going to try him. And he is wondering how am I going to deal with that? How am I going to be tried for essentially preaching Jesus, living in Jesus? Here's what it's like. Those moments where maybe you're a student or maybe you've been in that situation and you're at a university or in a class or, or something where your professor makes an offhanded comment about Christianity being very ignorant. It doesn't, it doesn't really connect with understanding facts. Maybe you're in an office situation and you're at a water cooler and around the water cooler is just a discussion of religion and every religion seems to be somewhat thrown in and all religions are basically the same. There's not a whole lot there. And the moments of that, you feel in your work or in in that classroom setting, you find yourself going, a little bit of shame about Jesus. A little bit of like, do I speak up? How do I live this? Those moments, you kind of feel judged. It's sitting maybe with a friend that you haven't really talked to in a while. And maybe this comes up of like, yeah, Christianity is probably the most bigoted thing that you could just become. And you all of a sudden go, do they know that I'm a Christian? Should I tell them? I remember even having a moment where I was talking to a group where... (laughs) The, the friends were saying, yeah, that we're doing this thing. We're going here to this Christian event, this Bible study, this kind of thing. And the person next to them, they had not had this conversation, goes, I don't, really, y'all do that kind of thing? And all of a sudden, you saw the blood just drain from their face. And it wasn't a moment of like, you're not this. It was also a moment of, wait, we do this? Where are the moments where you Encounter judgment and the shame is, is just gripping. It's, it's not courage. It's those moments where you kind of like, you're on an airplane. And the person next to you sees you reading a book and you wonder, how much do I, and they ask you, what you reading? And you kind of figure, how much do I tell them about 
following Jesus. It's not shame of knowing an answer. Many of us in this room may be going, well, I know answers to give. It's not that. See, then you're putting your confidence in an answer. Paul is struggling with his confidence in the good news of Jesus. Is it really going to sustain him when he comes face to face with a reality of judgment? And that's the place where we all put ourselves in. Where we all are in those moments. It's the moments when your young child asks you a question. And it's maybe even a normal, very good question. And you go, maybe you're over here. And you're helping teach or lead. And a child raises their hand and says, why this? And you just kind of are stunned for a moment. Why, why do I? Not just that you don't know the answer, but you go, how do I really believe this? Do I really follow Jesus? That's where Paul is. Imagine that. Paul is struggling so much with what it means to follow Christ that he wonders, will I have courage? Do you have courage? Look, courage to follow Jesus means that you have courage in those moments that you will take on whatever consequence comes your way. That's what courage really is. It's doing the right thing. It's doing something even though you know there will be massive consequences. And Paul is faced with that. Look, we, we recite a lot of, oh, <clears throat> creeds and confessions. And sometimes we recite from what's called the Book of Common Prayer. And I don't know if you know anything about the history of that. But the man who wrote that was a man named Thomas Cranmer. Very interesting man. And he was um, <clears throat> really a part of what was called the English Reformation at the time. And undergoing in the, in the country of England a lot of religious tossing and turning, persecution. And as he was a part of, uh, you know, um, uh, major uh, political as well as religious circles, he found himself being thrown between the two and oftentimes asked questions of how do I play politics so I can honestly, literally not burn at the stake? And so over and over he would recant, even in moments they would say, do you believe this? And he would find himself in moments where he'd say, I don't know if I believe this. He even had to sign cer certain documents and then thrown back into it again. And they wanted finally, they put him in a position to finally publicly renounce his errors that he believed in this Bible, that he believed that who Christ was. He believed that the scriptures, the Bible itself was that powerful. And under, in court, under pressure, it says that he actually buckled and he renounced Martin Luther himself as heretical. But he would once also have a speech, and while he was in prison, awaiting his execution, he had a moment to reflect, many moments. And, and as he did that, it sank in. And, and he said publicly this, listen to this. He renounced his recantations and said, he held up his hand, he said, this hand has offended my God. And it shall be the first to be punished. And here's what happened. When they put Thomas Cranmer, who was, who was declared guilty, burned at the stake as he would be, as they tied him up, he cried out to God holding his hand that signed the document. This is the one who we recite from the Book of Common Prayer. He held his hand in the fire first, saying, this hand 
hath offended thee, my God, and allowed his hand first to be burned for his Savior. Look, I know for many of us, we will never be in that situation. But what is encouraging about that is the fact that all of us in this room struggle with the same thing. You, need, you and I need to hear, we often think of like great people of church history that they never, they never wavered, they never struggled. Thomas Cranmer struggled over and over with how am I not, how do I have courage and not ashamed of Jesus? How am I not? How are those moments where you boldly proclaim who he is? Just in your life, as Paul says here, to live out in the flesh, what does it mean to not be ashamed of Christ? And it's encouraging to read often people who like Thomas Cranmer, who actually laid their life down, because many of us in this room can easily get away with the fact that life is not Christ. But he's put in a situation, in this moment, Paul is in prison facing his trial. And he is having to ask the question, what is life made of? Because death is in front of him. What do you have in front of you that you say this is living so that you can avoid death? Or is Jesus so much so that death is actually gain when it comes? The the thing he uses in this passage right after this, he says this, and this is fascinating. He says, not only with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether to my life or by death. That word honored, exalted, maybe a a word in, in, in your Bible. It's a word that talks about Jesus made larger, exalted. It means he's actually magnified. It's a different word than normal. It's actually a word, megloa. It's the same word we get megalomaniac. What is a megalomaniac, right? Someone who is obsessed with power. Paul is saying he has to be obsessed not with his power, but with Jesus' power. That's what he's saying. He's saying he's a megalomaniac towards Jesus in his body, whether in life or in death. And it's those moments, and this I think is such a perfect description of this, It's those moments of where do we make ourselves larger rather than Jesus? That's what Paul is trying to get at. He's saying, where is Jesus made large, magnified, bigger than you in the moment? The moments where I find myself getting incredibly larger is when I find myself defensive. (laughs) When I find myself having to protect me or guard me or make myself bigger in order to overcome an insecurity, or show myself bigger in a situation when I don't know something. You know those moments. Those moments where you find yourself incredibly insecure. You don't know what to say. You've done something wrong. You don't know how to handle a situation. And instead of humility, We oftentimes make ourselves bigger. We puff ourselves up. We put ourselves in a position to make our presence greater. And it's interesting in these moments, how do we find Jesus larger? How do we make him larger in those moments? Look, when in the moment you find that success, when in that moment do you take Jesus and you stop for the moment and you say, Is he bigger than me here? Is he big enough 
Because imagine being faced with this. With Paul in prison, you in those moments, he's talking about his ministry. He's saying it's fruitful labor, ministry in his success, whether by life or by death. He's talking about the body of, in his life, is Jesus made larger in that? In those moments you find yourself where you have a great success and you believe the greatness of yourself. Isn't that where we are, what Paul it shifts from being megalomaniacs to megalochristac, if you want to make a new word. But where we put ourselves in that moment where we say we are amazing. What would get you through that? When you're faced with the reality of death, when you're faced with that, we have to think about that. We just looked at a book, Ecclesiastes, that talks all about where we're heading. We're all heading there. But what causes you to feel bigger? What, what makes you actually say, death is gain? It has to be something. Life is what? There's so many articles out about what people are looking for. That If you type this in, it is phenomenal to see how many things pop up. Diets, work, parenting, what is it? It's finding some sort of group that, that makes you feel like you have life. What, what makes it is Christ. It is the presence. You know these, these moments, and, and Nashville's becoming, it's interesting during the, um, <clears throat> the uh, NHL playoffs, when it went back and forth between the Nashville Predators and, uh, and the Winnipeg Jets. And it would show, interesting, who, who's there, right? And the big thing for when the, when the game were, was in Nashville was always that they were saying, who's going to come out and sing the national anthem? Who's in the crowd? It was always that kind of discussion of who's out there. And it always made, it was interesting seeing the announcers talk about it because it made the Nashville Predators seem larger, there was something about it, like there's this hype here, and we have these people here now, and it is just such this big event, and everybody wants to be a part of it. It's not just, everybody wants to throw a catfish on the ice now. And we have the Tennessee Titans up in the, up in the booth. I mean, it's like this whole event, but that's, isn't that kind of the feeling? We want to be around something that's bigger than us, because it gives us some honor, gives us some magnification. But what Paul is doing, he's saying, the only thing that can give you true magnification is if you look to Jesus. Look, these are called, what we look at here at this table and what reading the Bible, we actually, actually, if you don't have a Bible, we actually have Bibles for free you can have in the back. And these are things called means of grace that, that through the centuries, people used to talk about means of grace. These are the means by which we actually see Jesus. And most of us in this room talk about these kind of things and go, these are disciplines. These are things that we just kind of do. So when we talk, and we just had this conversation at our house this week, when the young adults were at our house, we had this Q&A, we're actually talking about this reality that we actually look at most of when we talk about, hey, how's your relationship with the Lord going? What's that like? When we talk about it, we talk about it, well, I haven't prayed in a while. You know, I'm kind of I'm behind in my Bible reading plan, whatever it is. I wish I journaled more, you know. I mean, I'm constantly have a, have a to-do on my phone that says journal. 
And I'm trying to encourage myself and I'm constantly having to push to do, done, done, when I've never even typed anything or written anything. You know those moments. Your pastor's being honest with you here. I do the same thing. Because what do we do? We see them as not means of growing. We see them as ends. We, see, we, we count them as our to-do. We count them as the way that we measure our relationship with God and gives us some sort of significance. Do you know what they're actually supposed to do? They're supposed to magnify Jesus to you. You, wanna, you ask me the question, how do I magnify Jesus? How do you know to magnify him other than going to him where he is? In the Bible, in the, I'm not giving you just spiritual platitudes. I'm telling you, if we, if doing more prayer isn't the answer. If you really knew what you were doing in prayer, if you really knew what you were doing by reading the Bible, that's how you would be enriched to go back to it. It's not just by saying, I'm gonna do it all the time. It's that Jesus is made larger. Even when you go to it and you don't feel something, it's not about an emotion. It's not about the intellect. It's not about the way that you read the Bible and you go, you know, I never knew that before. That's great. But if we don't go to it honestly and say, how is Jesus made larger? Then the rest of our day today is not gonna make sense. The rest of your life, life, when you walk out of these doors, you will say, life is this. How do you measure what is life so that you may see death as gain? Because Paul says this, this desire is to depart and be with Jesus because it's better by far. Why could he say that? Why could he say that? Here's what's so fascinating when we have interesting, like, honest discussions is the fact that if we're really honest in this room and sitting around, maybe we get to lunch and we say, you know what? I don't know if, we talk about when Jesus returns a lot, that Jesus is gonna come back. Now a lot of us in this room, let's be honest, that we don't really, we're kinda like, okay, that's great, but I'm kinda enjoying it here. Like I kinda just like my life. Like there's so much more, I'm not really super excited about him coming back. I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying that. I'm receiving this. I'm receiving that. How much do we really ask ourselves, what does it really mean that Paul wanted so much that he knows that when he dies, he's going to be with Jesus immediately? And that that defined him staying in this world. It wasn't, notice this, he's not contemplating suicide. He's talking about how do I make sense of staying in this world? Because if it's not better to go be with Jesus, then what's the point of now? And how do we assess? Are we honest enough to assess that? Do you know what he appeals to? He appeals to their citizenship. Look, I want you to see something in this passage. The fact that he ends this by saying something that we should know ourselves. He says in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Do you know what language he uses there? He says worthy a life worthy of the gospel, a manner. You know what he's actually using here? He's talking about citizenship. 
He's appealing to their citizenship. The actual Greek word is be a good citizen of the gospel. And he's appealing to a Roman colony who would have plastered everywhere that Philippi was a little Rome. To them, being a citizen meant everything. I don't know if you did it. Maybe many of you did. Watch the royal wedding, right? How many of you recorded that? You don't have to raise your hand. Wayne, I know you loved it. Very interesting. You know what fascinated me watching that royal wedding? I didn't watch the whole thing. I watched parts I could. What was interesting to me was watching her face as she's taking on an entire, can you imagine like one of us being thrust in that? I know every woman in this room is just, long, I mean, wouldn't it be awesome to be in that position? There were like Mary, me, Harry people, you know, had shirts outside. It's like a, it's like a rock concert. It was crazy. What was so fascinating was seeing her face. It wasn't just that she was getting married. She was getting married and be brought in to be a citizen of the UK, which is interesting in and of itself, but brought in to be a part of the royal family. Can you imagine the weight of what's happening there? It's, it's not a normal thing that she's having, that Meghan Markle's having to take it on. It was interesting. USA Today said this. Listen to what it said. The questions that American actress Meghan Markle will have to answer if she wants to become a citizen after she marries Prince Harry on Saturday. Like many foreigners who marry Brits, they'll have to contend with a formidable opponent before she can acquire an additional nationality. Britain's immigration system. Listen to this. It's not clear whether she will give up her American passport, but it requires applicants to pass a test that covers British history, traditions, and social customs. As 24 multiple choice questions, and to pass it, you have to get at least 18 right, and you have to do it in 45 minutes. Here she is becoming royalty. And yet she has, in order to become a citizen, actually take it on. Just to pass a test. Do you know what Paul's appealing to them about? He's saying, you have this amazing citizenship in Rome, but you know what's even greater is a citizenship that has been given in blood and in body. Not Paul's body and blood. He says, I'm not present with you, but you know there's one who gave himself for you. There's one who it says in Hebrews, took up the cross, despising the shame to give his body and blood. One who went to the cross to magnify himself so that when you come to this table, you're not just coming here to take another meal. You're coming because Jesus has made himself larger because you and I want to come to this table and say, I can come because I'm large, because I'm magnified, because I'm somebody. Would we repent? Would we turn away from the ways that we magnify ourselves because the citizenship has been done for us? Test passed. Name stamped. Your name is in heaven because of the body and blood of the one who gave himself up, even removed himself for a moment on the cross of his own citizenship so that you might be brought in to the body of heaven.
This is the name you bear. This is the one you come to. Let's stand together. And as we do, I want to call out something. We're going to be reading from what's called the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a catechism that was written. The first line says, where we belong to. It asks you the question of life and death. It says we belong body and soul. That word belong, it means you are now a citizen of heaven. You are his. So read it with a heart of that.